welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kate Cronin. This program is part of an ongoing speaker series in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who share their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the rapidly changing media landscape. This week's guest is PJ Shapiro. PJ Shapiro started out with every intention of becoming a doctor, but after three days of dental school, it became clear that that was not the path for him. So he became an entertainment lawyer, and today he represents big name clients such as Emma Stone, Mindy Kaling, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, just to name a few. PJ is currently a managing partner at Ziffrin Brittenham LLP and has structured and negotiated groundbreaking transactions in the media and entertainment industries, resulting in both lucrative financial benefits and extensive creative control for his clients. In addition, he has helped his clients identify and exploit important ancillary revenue sources, such as publishing, endorsements, and merchandising. PJ Shapiro spoke with UT students on October 12, 2020, and the conversation was hosted by Dr. Elisa Perrin. They discussed the role of an entertainment industry lawyer, the process of negotiating contracts, and some significant shifts in the media industry business models that have occurred over the past few decades, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, so uh, first off, welcome everyone who's signing in for the latest installment of the Media Industry Conversation Speaker Series. I am thrilled to welcome a returning guest, uh, PJ Shapiro, who is a managing partner at Ziffrom Brittenham. And we're going to talk about all sorts of different issues today, ranging from what he does uh, as a managing partner, his roles and responsibilities, a little on his career trajectory and how the business has been changing both pre and post COVID. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot to talk about both in terms of that as well as all that's happening in terms of streaming services and larger industry transformations. So uh, welcome PJ, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, it's great to see you again. Yeah, and so just to start us off, um, I'd love to have you just in broad strokes, give a sense of your role at Different Britain Ham, what you do, and we'll kind of do a deeper dive as we go. Great. Um, first, I'm sorry that I can't see your faces in, in person. It was uh, a blast being there last year, and, and maybe some of you can return to say hi if, if I'm lucky enough to come back and visit next year, but um, thrilled to be here with you all. So, um, I'm the managing partner of a boutique law firm called Ziffrin Brittenham. It's been around for about 45 years. And though we're small by law firm standards, we are definitely considered the most powerful and prominent media firm in the country. Um, my, you know, the scope of my role, I have, you know, in about seven full-time jobs. One of them is representing clients and dealing with the transactional issues that come up in a, an actor, filmmaker, producer, writer's life. Um, I don't go to court. I'm not a litigator. What I do is, you know, structure the contracts and deals when artists and entrepreneurs have opportunities in the film, TV, and music spaces. So, you know, part of my day is just making new deals for clients. Part of my day is sort of the, 
what I call the, the hand-holding and therapy part of you know, the practice, which is dealing with artists who you know, come in all forms but have consistently very fragile psyches that need managing and, and handling when things don't go as planned. Um, I spend a fair amount of my time sort of managing the direction of the firm and that ties into things like hiring and focusing on specific practice areas, talking about, um, you know, technology acquisitions. And, you know, then I spend a fair amount of my time mentoring some of the younger lawyers that are beginning their careers. Now, we're not a firm that hires students right out of law school because we don't really have the infrastructure for training. Um, but now that I'm at a certain point in my career, I've taken it upon myself to spend more and more time with some of the newer lawyers to help them think about how to become great at what they do and to how, how to focus on building a practice, which you know, is, is something that many people want to pursue. Great. That's, that's plenty for us to sort of pick apart as we go yeah. uh, from there, definitely. Um, I want to just have us back up for a few minutes and have you talk a little bit about how you came to this position. Um, at what point did you realize that your interest was being an entertainment lawyer? I know you also have an MBA, so I'm just kind of curious if you can give a sense of yeah. that trajectory. It's like a couple of weeks ago that I decided being a lawyer was the right fit for me. Um, <laughs> I actually have a, it's a fun story for any of you out there who, you know, aren't quite sure what you want to do. There's plenty of time. I, um, I, I'm a California guy, Los Angeles, and, and um, I went to school undergrad at UCLA and I was pre-med at UCLA. Um, and I was on a preordained path to become a doctor. My parents, you know, my first gift as a baby, I'm told, was a stethoscope, and my parents were determined that I become a doctor. So I'm, you know, a physiological sciences major at UCLA, studying organic chemistry, physics, God knows what else, and I took the MCAT you know, prepared my applications for medical school and had what I'd call an early life crisis where I decided that I did not want to be a doctor. And so rather than just kind of ripping the bandaid off, I was worried about disappointing my parents. And so I withdrew from the medical school applications and decided to take the dental school exam. So I took the DAT, I got into UCLA dental school, started there, Three days into it, I quit and finally decided that, you know, nothing in science was going to be for me. I, you know, I neither had the manual dexterity nor the tolerance for blood to do anything in the medical profession. So there I am. I'm, I think at the time I was managing a gym. I had a deep understanding of organic chemistry, but not much else in terms of practical skills. So I decided to go back to school and I got my law degree and my MBA. And even at the end of grad school, I was still debating between practicing law and taking a job at an investment bank. And there I was dating a woman during law school who's now my wife and her dad 
was what I would call like a B movie producer. And that was sort of my first exposure to the entertainment industry. And my wife said to me, why don't you do something entertainment? You're in Los Angeles, seems like a fun idea. And I said, okay, I, you know, whatever you, and for 25 years, I've sort of just done that. Okay, that sounds good, whatever you say, honey. Um, and there was this firm, a big institutional law firm called O'Melveny and Myers. And 20 some odd years ago, they would hire one or two students a year into their entertainment group. And so I got one of those jobs and I worked there for about a year representing studios and banks and doing a bunch of sort of the corporate entertainment work. And I kind of, I realized soon that I didn't want to represent companies, that I liked personal connection and that I would be much happier representing individuals. So I spent, you know, days and nights studying the artist representation space. And I found this firm, you know, was aware of this firm, Ziffer and Brittenham, which was, you know, a big talent firm that also had this really interesting corporate M&A practice. And I thought between my business background and the interest in working for artists, that's where I want to go. So I spent, you know, six months basically just all over one of the younger partners there begging for a job. And, and I got one and that was 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So how long were you at the one firm, O'Melveny, before you moved to Ziffron? About a year and a half, which was highly unusual. Usually the firm I'm at now hires people with, you know, seven to 10 years of experience. But at that time, they were looking for, you know, they, they were looking for a per particular person to help with a specific kind of work. And I just jumped in and kind of swam my way through. Very cool. So I'm yeah. curious, since it sounds like entertainment law wasn't really on your radar until you finished, like, did you ever take any classes or were you just purely learning on the job? Are people, are people really taking entertainment law classes that much? So I think, and I think this is the case, you know, in any field inside of law, law school, I think, teaches you how to think a certain way teaches you how to problem solve, issue spot, and, and it teaches you a certain kind of writing style. Um, and you learn fundamentals about, you know, technical issues in law, like contracts is a very practical class. Intellectual property is a very practical class. And, and I think intellectual property is an interesting class for people who want to pursue a, a career in the entertainment space. Um, and I did take once, once I was in my third year sort of rounding home because of the joint degree program, I did take a few classes in the communications and entertainment um, schools at USC where I got my grad degrees. And they were super helpful about just giving me an overview of, of the business. But the truth is whether you're going into, you know, real estate or M&A or securities or entertainment, you know, you learn more in the first year of practice than you could possibly learn, you know, in a, in a decade of school. I think there are great building blocks and I'd encourage, you know, students who have interest in the space to take sort of the building block courses, but there's a lot of it you just pick up on the job. That's helpful. So do you think, like what types of careers do you think people 
need law degrees for in the entertainment industry? Like how much do you think a law degree will help you as an agent or a manager or that sort of thing? You know, like I said, there's, I'd say a couple things, particularly to this group. Now, I, I'm told the majority of you are undergraduates, although there are some grad students. Let me start with the following thesis. This is not a great time to be running out looking for a job, right? It's, it's a reality for all of us. And, you know, I have teenage kids who are, you know, on the precipice of college and, you know, we'll, I have hope for them in a few years that we'll kind of bounce through this. But if you can afford it, if you have a means of paying for it, to me, this is as good a time as ever to spend a couple extra years in school and sort of <laughs> delay the job market and, you know, pick up something that will be make you even more marketable when you come out of school. In terms of practical usage of the law degree, I mean, to me, like I said, I think it, it teaches you critical thinking. It teaches you issue spotting. And I think that the skills you learn in law school, obviously you need them to practice law. You need them, you, you almost need them without exception to be a deal maker on behalf of the studios and the streamers and the television production companies. So there are positions in what are called business affairs, right? And legal affairs and legal affairs, you have to be a lawyer and 99% of the business affairs executives at all of the studios and buyers are lawyers too. Um, there, I would say the majority of C-suite officers at studios, the, the you know, chief executive, the chief operating executive, um, you know, by and large, they have graduate degrees, if not law degrees, MBAs. Um, and yes, as an agent, part of your job is going to be negotiating as well. And so, you know, I, I, would, I would argue that it's certainly a helpful job for anyone who wants to pursue something business oriented in the media business. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit to have you talk about your firm. Yeah. Um, and maybe you, you mentioned Ziffer and Bittenham, you described it as a relatively boutique firm, but I know, and for students just to say, it is the firm, as you said, that I, I know for uh, a lot of key talent and key yeah. companies. Um, I'm curious if you can talk about the structure and size of the company a little bit, like what divisions there are, is yeah. it broken into like film, TV, like how that all fits together? Yeah, so um, we are 30 lawyers. Um, we span six generations. The founders of the firm, you know, Ken Ziffern and Skip Brittenham are 80 and they're both in the office every single day. And we have, you know, now lawyers who are not yet 30. So we have, you know, five, six generations of leadership at the company. We have a film and television group and there are about 22 of us in film and television. Um, we have a music group and that's the other eight. Um, you know, I spend my practice, my practice is pretty diversified and unique within my firm because I do represent some musicians who, you know, cross over into film and TV. I do a lot of branding deals for people who either want to create their own lines of apparel or fragrance or, or other products or have 
broad endorsement relationships with major corporations. Um, and I spend about half my time in film, half my time in television, you know, evenly split between actors, writers, and directors. And, you know, like on the music side, we represent Beyonce and Kelly Clarkson and Justin Timberlake. And, um, you know, my partner is the executor of the Jackson estate and, um, you know, the Nirvana, you know, Cobain estate and Alicia Keys and Shakira and Selena Gomez and, um, you know, a, a bunch of really well-known artists. Just a few uh, small names there. Nothing. Yeah, big. well, I think, I assume the group, <laughs> it's more fun to think about it in, in, you know, in context. And I'm happy to talk about, you know, the, the folks that I work with and some of the fun things we've done to the extent they're public. But, um, Oh, hang on one sec. But, you know, our, our practice, again, is sort of generally the, you know, our clients are people who've either reached a certain level of success or people that we've been with for a long time who we, you know, had reason to believe could get there. So, you know, I've represented a handful of my clients since they were teenagers, you know, people like Emma Stone and, and Selena Gomez and Evan Rachel Wood and Mindy Kaling and, and, you know, a whole host of others. And then I started representing others later in their careers, people like John Cena and Tiffany Haddish and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and um, Jamie Foxx. And so it kind of runs the gamut. Um, but yeah, our, our firm, we, we're doing okay. Yeah, it, it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like you are. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned that you'll sometimes focus on deals around brands. Um, and I'm curious if you maybe can talk a little bit about how that works and how that's changed over time. So that's a great question. And, you know, part of my job is to try to be proactive and forward thinking about where opportunities are going to exist, right? Because there are evolving dynamics in all industries, but the media business is certainly no exception. And places that were incredibly lucrative 10 years ago may not be, you know, today. And things that actors didn't contemplate 10 years ago could be great opportunities today. So I remember as about 18 years ago, I represented uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones and she had just won the Oscar for Chicago. And she was, you know, at the time considered, you know, a critically acclaimed and commercially successful actress, you know, very, very, you know, high profile. And at the time, celebrities like that didn't do commercials. They did them overseas where you couldn't see them because there was no internet, right? There was no globalization of commerce. So, you know, Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone would do these German beer commercials or, you know, you, you guys may have seen this movie Lost in Translation where Bill Murray plays this, you know, kind of downward trending movie star who's doing, you know, his work in Asia. But people didn't endorse things here in the States. It felt like a sellout, right? And, it, and there was a concern it would somehow dilute your brand value. So Catherine Zeta-Jones, we made a deal with T-Mobile and it was, it's reported, so it's not anything I, I can't share. It was a, you know, eight figure deal 
uh, for her a year. And here she was just winning the Oscar and now she's on commercials and billboards and, you know, and all of a sudden that sort of opened a door to this new business for famous celebrities, right? Um, and I have worked with a number of people, a lot of them, you know, are the crossover artists that I talked about, because for musicians, it was far less taboo. But, you know, now yeah, I have Emma Stone working with Louis Vuitton. I had Selena Gomez with her own, you know, line at Kmart when, when that was viable. And, you know, now a beauty deal and John Cena's got a deal with Honda and, you know, I'm, I'm about to announce a new deal. We're, we're about to announce a new deal for Donald Glover. I mean, so all of our clients now are supplementing their film and TV earnings with millions and millions of dollars in brand partnerships. And so again, those deals can take several forms. One is you partner with like a big fashion house like Louis Vuitton and they pay you a ton of money and they dress you and you, you know, appear at events and you do print ads and you do commercials and others are, you know, like Justin Timberlake, um, we developed a tequila line called 90, you know, 901 and we had a, a jeans company called William Rast and we partner with a manufacturer and we create our own product. We hire our, you know, own distribution and, and manufacturing team. Um, so, you know, uh, more and more, I mean, you know, you probably just read about Ryan Reynolds' big gin deal. And before that, uh, Clooney had his, you know, um, Casamigos deal. So increasingly, celebrities are realizing that there's value in their association and they're making tons and tons of money just, you know, loaning out their name and likeness into deals like this. So will deals like that ever involve any sort of arrangement with movies or TV shows that that product will get in there as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's, I, there are two buckets of sort of products and movie deals. One is the one that has nothing to do with the celebrity, which is, you know, Aston Martin has a deal with MGM and the Broccoli family to be the car of 007. Now that's actually changed in recent years, but there are, you know, deals between the studios and major companies, um, either for product placement inside the film or for some sort of tie-in between the company and the movie. Like Marvel will do a deal with McDonald's where you see, you know, you can get your Marvel Happy Meal and there's a trade of promotion for, for the uh, sponsorship. The other scenario is, is just, again, using this example, Emma Stone has this long-standing deal with Louis Vuitton. She does a film and they want her to wear a fancy gown from, you know, Hermes or Chanel. And, and she says, no, but hey, why don't I bring Louis Vuitton in? And Louis Vuitton might actually spend money for the film in exchange for having their products featured. So we can be a catalyst and you know, we've also used those opportunities as ways to extract a little more for the clients too. So I'm curious, in terms of the former type, the placement type, you're not usually involved in those kind of negotiations. You're more oriented around the talent side. Yeah, yeah. So my interests are purely on the talent side. Those deals happen between the marketing and PR departments of, of those companies. Where I get involved, right, is that 
if my client has some sort of overall relationship with a company, whether it's a spirits company, an apparel company, or whatever, and the film wants my client to associate or integrate in some way with a competitive product, that, then I get involved to say, we can't do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm curious, you mentioned that um, beyond the sort of brand deals that you do for talent, you're, you said about half TV, half film, or it's kind of split. And I'm curious, like what that means these days, because there's yeah. so much convergence, like how does that all work? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a, and this is, this is probably, and we could do, you know, three hours on this topic. Um, and I encourage, I can't tell if they're asking questions, but I see like 86 participants, which is awesome. And I certainly encourage you to ask questions. So you're a hundred percent right. Um, there are, there are, the lines between film and TV have blurred. They've been blurring for the past few years. As soon as Netflix started making movies, frankly, even before that, when HBO started making movies, um, you know, you guys probably won't remember and to the extent you do, you won't admit it, but you know, there was a whole world of TV movies that used to exist and you know, maybe you still find them on the Lifetime channel or Hallmark, right? Um, and there were obviously the big blockbuster feature films that would be released theatrically. Um, you know, we knew those, those were the Marvel movies and, and virtually everything until Netflix signs Will Smith up to do a movie or Sandy Bullock to do her movie. And then all of a sudden, wait, are these movies or is this a TV outlet? And sometimes the streaming platforms want them to be TV because they want to, they want to assert exclusivity against other streaming platforms. And sometimes they want them to be movies so they can qualify for awards. And as the talent rep, we have our own, our own sort of cherry picking philosophy because we want them to be film and TV depending on what we're negotiating for. But I think what you have seen is a migration of both, you know, big time movie stars and very high profile you know, filmmakers, directors moving from theatrical motion pictures towards working with you know, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Hulu. And so you're seeing sort of what we all have come to know as movies released by what, what were originally presented to us as television platforms. The other thing you're seeing is what we call limited or closed end series, right? And again, without knowing the breakup here, I'm assuming a, a lot of you, you know, five, 10 years ago, at some point we're watching television shows on Fox, NBC, you know, probably not CBS, maybe ABC. Um, and I suspect fewer, if any of you continue to do that, but there were shows and even on Netflix in early days, there were shows that would last, you know, 15, 20 years in the case of shows like Law and Order or The Simpsons or Family Guy, it's, you know, 25, 30 years. And that happened with, um, what's the Kevin Spacey show, the first original show that we sold to Netflix. Like who can remember? Oh, House of Cards. House of Cards, right? <laughs> and that was on for five or six seasons. But now what you're seeing is a lot of 
one or two season shows. And there are reasons for that. We can talk about that too. But that was also an old form of television programming that existed 30, 40 years ago, the limited series. And, you know, it's the greatest job in the world if you're a big movie star, right? Because we're making deals for people to go do 10 episodes of a, of a series and they're making a million to a million five an episode. So they can go shoot this series, make 10, 15 million bucks and have no obligation to come back, you know? And, and filmmakers love the medium because it allows them to tell a longer story than they can in two hours. Um, and they have control as to whether or not they keep it going. So as you, as you led the question, you know, maybe a long-winded answer, there is no, you know, the, the lines are completely blurred now. So I'm curious, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask piggybacking off of that, but I'm curious, do you see the old broadcast syndication model as just fading into the, like how, what do you see in terms of that kind of model these days? Well, so yes, I, I do see the traditional um, broadcast network to syndication business changing dramatically. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. And I really like wish I could see the students' faces to figure out if they're all glazed over and bored from this or if they're intrigued with this topic. But well, I'm, I'm shoving them into re talking about this this next week. So it's very helpful to have you. <laughs> Good. So, so here, here's what you got to think about, right? So the traditional TV model, I'll, I'll reference a show like Supernatural, which is a 15 year standing show on the CW and it was produced by Warner Brothers. So the way broadcast network television works is the studio or production company finances and produces and owns the show. And that company spends, let's just make it easy, spends a million dollars an episode. In reality, they spend like seven or eight million dollars an episode, but they, you know, let's say they spend a million dollars an episode and they go to the broadcast network, in this instance, CW. And CW pays them an amount of money usually about 70% of the budget. So they pay about $700,000 to have the right to put that show on the CW in the US. Warner Brothers, remember the own company that owns the show, has a $300 deficit that they're still out of pocket on. So they sell rights internationally, right? So let's say they get $300,000 an episode from all of the international territories. Now they're, you know, recouped and what they can do is in a couple of years, they can sell the right to HBO or Showtime or, you know, whomever. And beyond that, they can, they can sell them to TNT and to TBS. And then they can sell them to Fox and, and ABC for 1130 at night. Um, and they can even sell them to Netflix, right? So the the way that model worked is the owner kind of split off rights and sold a whole bunch of rights and made a bunch of money and they produced 22 shows a season. And, you know, if they had a long-standing show that had those kind of metrics, it could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars to the studios and the people, you know, the writers and actors and whomever who have ownership interest in those shows. Um, 
what has happened since then is the streaming platforms have emerged and the streaming platforms as they started were the ones out there buying those rights from the production companies but they paid a bunch of money for those rights and in exchange they didn't want those shows going anywhere else so and eventually what they did is they realized they didn't want to license shows from other people. They wanted to create their own shows or co-own shows if they were brought by somebody else. So over the course of, you know, a few years, Netflix eventually became, you know, went from becoming a physical delivery, like it was like a DVD rental company to an acquisition company to an owner. And the reality is, Cable networks like TNT and TBS and FX that used to buy shows from the studio are making their own shows. So there are fewer and fewer places for those network shows to be sold. And in the meantime, all of those companies, Warner Brothers, Universal, Paramount, all the major studios are creating their own streaming platform. So with AT&T, Warner, you have HBO Max. With Universal, you have Peacock. With Viacom and Paramount, they had you know CBS All Access. They're renaming it the Paramount streaming platform. So I do think the syndication market is going to you know disintegrate, but it will be replaced with this whole streaming affiliated sales you know streaming model. Meaning Universal will sell its shows to Peacock. Warner Brothers will sell its shows to HBO Max. And, and that will be how they monetize assets sort of internally. So how does that figure into the way you're working to negotiate talent deals then? <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because in, in the short term, it's amazing. Like, I, you know, again, I'll share things that have been reported, but in the short term, there's what I call an arms race going on, right? every one of these streamers is spending crazy amounts of money to kind of create distinction in brand, right? Netflix is spending an infinite amount of money. Disney has a war chest and Disney plus is right behind them. Amazon doing okay too. They have a few bucks to shell out. And so in the meantime, what's happening is, um, so you take that model I just, laid out for you where the studio would sell pieces to all these different entities right and if you have a show like you know the simpsons that show now is in season i think 30 maybe even more they not only have they sold it once to tv they, they're on their seventh syndication cycle meaning they've sold it for five years and that has happened again and again and again and in fact, they just basically did a deal with FXX, which is a separate network, to program that entire network with the 300 plus episodes. And the money that has come into Fox and the creator, who's a client of ours, Jim Brooks, the guy's made over a billion dollars on this show. So that's like, like to own a show that will just keep kicking off cash. And, and the creators of shows like Friends still make 60 to 100 million bucks a year and, that, and Seinfeld and Law and Order because you can still see repeats of these shows on cable at, at 11 o'clock at night on channel 13 or whatever it is in, in Austin. Like that is 
you, you can never replicate that in the streaming world. Mm -hmm. But what's happening right now in the streaming world is, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge makes a show called Fleabag, which just catches fire in the zeitgeist. And she has a voice that is just resonating with people. And she's made, you know, a couple of smaller shows behind that, but really one major show. And Amazon agreed to pay nine figures, nine figures for the privilege of having her work exclusively with Amazon for a few years in television. Just did the same thing with Donald Glover. Uh, we just did the same thing with Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the guys who directed 21 Jump Street and, and you know, animated films like uh, Spider-Verse. And literally I have now about 11 or 12 of these deals where the market for these overall relationships, exclusive relationships has just exploded because you know HBO, Amazon, Hulu, Apple, Netflix, they all want to get subscribers. And how do you get subscribers? You have something that people want to see they can't get somewhere else. So they are spending crazy amounts of money. And the way I look at it, it is sort of, they're pre-buying the back end. There's no longer this hope of like a 20 year annuity but there's guaranteed mega cash up front. So right now it's really, really great. The question is in five or six years when these deals expire, will Netflix and Amazon and whomever else is left standing need to spend this kind of money anymore or will they already have their critical mass and subscribers? In which case I got to start thinking about where the next area is. So I'm curious, in broad strokes, like when they're striking these huge deal, exclusive deals, are they agreeing to produce any certain number of shows or is it all sort of dependent on the nature of the deal? Totally dependent on the nature of the deal. Um, you know, in some instances, the deal is wrapped around the show, right? So I represent a guy called Jesse Armstrong and he created this show Succession, which I think we talked about last year. And, you know, his deal for the show was up and he could have continued on the show and then done a whole bunch of other things. Um, he could have made a deal anywhere in the world after creating that show. And HBO wanted more than anything to keep him. Now, we made a deal with HBO where they paid him a ridiculous amount of money to stay there exclusively to work on succession and to work on whatever else he wanted to. And as part of that deal, Jesse agreed to produce seasons three and four. Um, he won't do anything else. Like he has no interest in doing anything else. So basically he's just going to collect a crazy amount of money to focus on the stuff he was already going to do. I, you know, under another deal, we just made, I made a, a big producing overall deal for Emma Stone, who's created a production company now. And I made this deal with a company called A24, which is an independent studio. They produce really cool stuff. Yeah. And part of the deal was their commitment to doing a 10 episode series that she wants to star in. 
So it just depends on the nature of the deal. I mean, at Amazon, they want more than anything for Phoebe to create another show that she's going to star in. And she, she was reluctant to make the deal because she didn't want that kind of pressure, but she made the deal and she's created one show inside the deal that will launch soon. And she's now starting on the one that she'll star in. So Amazon is, is happy. That's great. No, it's really helpful to have these range of examples. Um, yeah. I'm curious if, if, are the on-screen talent deals different than the deals that you would do for a writer or for a director? Like, how does that kind of break out? Yeah, they're, they're all so different. And even within each discipline, yeah. you know, there are just people who care about different things. I mean, you know, with actors, obviously, in all the, the cases, you, you want to talk about economics. You want to talk about how much cash they're going to get paid inside the budget of a film or television program. You're going to want to talk about equity and ownership and how much upside they'll have. Um, with filmmakers, directors, you know, it's a different relationship with a project. In a film, the filmmaker is there months before production starts prepping the movie. Uh, she or he is, you know, working on the film throughout. And then they spend, you know, several months in post editing the film so things you probably don't think about at first glance, but look, that director could be out of work for two years directing a film. So thinking about the economics, you have to think a little bit, not only about you know, the production fee, but how do we cover this person's life on the outside? Um, the other thing is that filmmakers are you know, generally obsessive about control. And, and creative control. And, you know, for brand new filmmakers, you have to pay your dues unless there are extenuating circumstances, you're likely gonna cede a lot of that control to the studios or the companies paying for the film. But if you're a Lord Miller or an Adam McKay or a Alfonso Cuaron, when we make those kind of deals, we negotiate for thing, something called final cut, which is the right to deliver the cut that will be seen in theaters. And so that's a big issue to filmmakers. Um, for actors, a lot has to do with pay, getting paid for your time, having control over how your name and likeness is used in association with the project. Um, you care a lot more typically about the creature comforts on set, right? Because they're long days and you're fancy and you want to be treated fancy. So you have to have a nice trailer and you have to have a trainer and you have to have, you know, five flights for all your friends to come visit you. Um, but you might care about things like where your credit appears because sometimes you do a film for less money because you think it's a great career move. And so you might care that your credit is prominently placed in front of the title so that you're associated with a film a certain way. So, you know, yeah, there's definitely differences. Yeah, so I'm curious in terms of who you are negotiating with, like how do you divide up the responsibilities between working with their agents or their managers or like how does that division of labor work and when do you come into the process, that sort of thing? Great question. And, you know, a lot of it depends 
on your own relationship with the client and your relationship with other representatives. And also every individual kind of does it their own way. Um, I have a reputation for being incredibly proactive and being involved the second there's an opportunity, but to the extent you want to put, you know, the reps in three or four care categories, there's the managers whose job is really creative in nature. It's, you know, at, at one extreme, they're sort of an, a creative executive to help develop ideas and, and foster, you know, the creative direction of the client. And they do a lot of the handholding and managing. The agent's primary responsibility is to go out and find jobs, right? They, they're the only ones that are licensed to solicit employment. Um, they live a little bit in the creative world and sometimes they negotiate, um, but their lane is primarily let's find the job. The lawyer's job is to negotiate structure and finalize the deal. And so that's, that's the interplay, but we, you know, we can work pretty collaboratively and, um, you know, we can do a lot of it together. We can divide and conquer sort of depends on the situation. And so in terms of the negotiation process, when do you tend to be talking to business affairs people? Like what other stakeholders at different companies would you be engaging with or divisions? Yeah, great. Um, so yes, <laughs> I think a lot of times the negotiation starts between us and business affairs. And I usually have somebody on, on every client I represent, I tend to have, you know, a junior partner, you know, work with me and we, are strategic in how we deal with the other side, but typically it will start with business affairs. And many times, the majority of times, we can get a deal done with business affairs. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll ask the agent to make a call to the creative executive to tell the business affairs how badly they want this project. So, and then sometimes what, what I will do is I'll call you know, one of the operators, you know, whether it's the president of production or chairperson, um, if there's a, you know, a big deal and we are struggling with a particular issue, sometimes I will just go to the decision maker at the studio. Gotcha. So I'm curious um, if, for example, you're negotiating the rights of the office, and I'm just throwing that out there, although if I recall, you might have been involved with that. With the office? Uh, yeah. 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 We represent okay. Carell and the creator of The Office. Greg Daniels or? Greg Daniels. Okay. So um, just out of curiosity, like when do you come in? Like how is that process for a show like that? It doesn't have to be that show when it's yeah. going from say Netflix to Peacock or? So this just happened. I, same dynamic. Um, maybe a show that well, I'm sure you guys are all watching The Office, too. It's like such a massive hit on Netflix. But same thing just happened with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where I also represent the creator and Andy Samberg, the star. Um, we are deeply involved in that negotiation because we have negotiated for Greg Daniels and, in the case of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Mike Schur and Dan Gore, who are the creators. They have really significant economic interest in the show. And so every year there can be a negotiation between the studio. Remember we talked about the owner and the network or licensee. 
And in the in an instance like with The Office, where you know it was living on NBC for its initial run, but now they did this you know massive deal. They had a streaming deal with Netflix, and then they took it off Netflix because they decided they wanted to sell it to their affiliate Peacock. So we got involved as that was happening because we raised our hand and said, hey, look, we know what you guys are doing here. You're selling to yourself. So we've got a lawsuit here if you don't pay fair market value. And we argued that they should be paying more than fair market value because we were helping them launch an affiliated platform. And if, the, if Peacock was going to go out and buy you know, a big show from a third party, they would be paying massive premiums to get it. So we spent, there was about three months where we were, it was a very, very tense uh, negotiation, but effectively it was a negotiation to avoid a lawsuit after the fact. And, and we did a ton of market research. We looked at the numbers that other platforms were paying for shows that performed on streaming like this. And we were ultimately really happy with the results. By the way, I did the same thing with friends on HBO Max. And this is happening over and over again. And, you know, I think I was intimating it before, but to be more direct, we are headed towards a world where you've got these closed ecosystems, right? Like Disney is not going to be selling movies to Amazon. Disney is going to be selling, releasing movies in theaters and sell and putting them out on Disney Plus. Eventually, Warner Brothers is going to do the same with HBO Max and Universal is going to try to do the same with Peacock. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, that that is why there is so much competition for content now, which is why representing the right people you know, right now there's a tremendous amount of opportunity because they're all building silos to compete against each other. No, this is really helpful. And I think contextualizes a lot of what we've been alluding to in class and we'll be talking about more. So I, I really appreciate it. I'm curious, do you see a space for the A24s or the Lionsgates or these smaller companies in this kind of context? Not necessarily them per se, but you know. Yeah, you know, <sighs> I represent a couple of these companies. I sit on the boards of a couple of these companies. Um, and like I said, I think there's a window, right? Um, and it's why you're seeing a certain type of approach. Years ago, the way independent companies or producers would work is they would find a writer and the writer would either pitch an idea to a studio or maybe write a, a script on what's called spec, which means writing it for free and then hoping to sell it. And a studio would, you know, maybe develop the script, take two years, maybe hire a casting director, put a budget together, maybe make the movie, maybe not. What you're seeing now, and it's, I mean, really, it started a long time ago, but in, in the recent era, it started with a company that I actually helped found and built out with some friends from school, which is called MRC. And it was, what's happening is these independent companies are being really opportunistic. They are trying to get scripts in advance of the studios. They'll pay big money for the scripts. 
They will go out and find the actor. They'll make a crazy deal for the actor that is contingent on selling the project somewhere. And sometimes they'll put in a director and they'll take that package and go to market. And, you know, four years ago, even two years ago, before Netflix was an in-house studio and insisting on build, you know, producing in-house, Amazon didn't have a studio, Hulu was laying off projects to third parties. There, it was the golden age, right? We were, again, it, MRC sold House of Cards, you know, however many years ago. We did it, um, you know, with an independent company out of the UK for the night manager. Um, and you're seeing a ton of this, right? And, and so, like, there's a guy we represent called Michael Ellenberg who owned and packaged the morning show with Reese Witherspoon and Jen Aniston. And the deals for that were crazy. The actors got paid, you know, tons of money. He got, you know, to take overhead on a $7 million budget and put that in his pocket. So the deals were crazy. That market is getting really competitive. And on the one hand, there's an infinite number of shelf space, right? Unlike broadcast networks, you don't have to worry about time slots. Netflix can put 85 shows out a minute, right? And they're still, thank God they have, because what else would we be doing right now? <laughs> um, but, you know, that, so, so that's the positive. The negative is, you know, at some point, they're not going to buy every package or they're going to, you know, there's not going to be as much competition um, and those deals will get shrunk. They'll get marginalized. And so I don't think there's a place for like a bunch of these independents to build out real infrastructure. Cause I just don't think they're going to have the volume. I think they'll get a couple of good deals a year and, and that might be it. I, I would not be a buyer on, on those independents right now. Gotcha. Um, well, I'm going to pivot a little bit to sort of larger big picture where the industry is, where it's going, and then open up for questions. We have a robust number of questions popping up. And Good. so uh, I won't take too much longer, but I do want to spend a few minutes talking about COVID and the pandemic and just sort of what has this last year since you visited in person been like and what's changing and what do you see changing? So, yeah, so I was telling Professor Perrin, you know, we, we're working from home, you know, just like you guys are. And um, I have not been in my office. I, I, can, I mean, I remember it. I, <laughs> I remember being, I think like one beat ahead of the curve relative to my peers in the marketplace because you know, they were, I remember calling my entire firm down and this is great. So that week in March, you know, it was like a Wednesday or a Thursday and I called my whole firm and we had an all firm meeting in our conference room, which like now that I think about it is awful. But I remember getting kind of emotional and choked up as I told them we were going to shut down and, and we were talking about it at the time this two weeks, but I kind of had this feeling it wasn't going to be two weeks. And since that time, I mean, the world has turned upside down. And, you know, there are two elements to the challenge. One is certainly managing a, you know, like a business and my law practice that has been deeply impacted because um, 
there have been no productions, you know, and we're only starting to see ramp up and, you know, ebbs and flows right now. So, you know, that was a very challenging thing personally, you know, and, and as a firm to keep everybody employed, to make sure nobody had to be furloughed, lose their job, or even take pay reductions. Um, you know, that was a big, that was a big uh, focus for us. And then separately managing a firm and dealing with just the emotions, not only with coronavirus, but social unrest and um, politics and, and everything going on in the world, I, I would say there has not been a more challenging year to manage an organization. And, you know, I have, I have, a hun I have 107 people that work at my firm all told. I've had individual conversations with each one of them at least four times. And I hold, you know, three Zooms a week with different groups within the firm. I've had to deal with some really challenging issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have, you know, people who are sole breadwinners in their household who have been, you know, fearful that they're not going to have a job. Um, so it's been crazy. It's been really, really challenging. Um, as a firm, we have benefited greatly because of our diversified approach to practice. Um, fortunately, our big TV deals, like the ones I've mentioned, they were guaranteed and they have not been suspended or terminated. They, you know, so we have been pretty fine during the pandemic. I have great friends that are at firms that only represent actors and they're down 70% this year because nobody's acting. So, you know, again, it's all relative. Like we're very fortunate. And even my friends who are down 70% are very fortunate, but this has impacted, you know, everyone. And I'm sure everyone watching this has been touched, you know, deeply by this, you know, and, and yeah, it's been crazy. And like I said, thank God for the streamers and their, you know, libraries of content, because I genuinely don't know what I would do without Peaky Blinders and my son right now. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I, it sounds like you've had to manage, literally manage and juggle so many different things and, and yeah. maintaining calm and all of that, I'm sure is not easy. Um, do you feel like, because you represent a lot of international figures, especially yeah. from the UK, like, do you yeah. see differences in the US versus the UK or other national contexts or? You know, yes and no. You know, my, my clients overseas, they're predominantly in the UK and Australia. And the UK has been dealing with the same thing. Um, you know, they I think they're like a, a chapter in front of us, right? In the sense that they were back to work a little earlier and now they've had to take a step back. Um, I've been involved with films shooting over there that have gone wonderfully. The Matrix is over there. Jurassic World is over there. Now Jurassic had to shut down for two weeks last week. Um, but, you know, similar. Again, everyone's sort of dealing with the same thing. And right now, 
again, it feels like there's a very slow momentum building back up towards resumption of production there and here. Good to know. Um, well, related, I'm going to pivot to the students' questions. Yeah, great. Um, and one sort of connects to the international dimension. So it falls right in. Ian asks, how do the rights for shows work in different countries? More specifically, how are the discussions to put content on separate streaming services held individually? Such a great question, Ian. Thank you. Um, so that itself has evolved tremendously over the past couple of years as companies, Netflix being the most obvious, have expanded their footprint into international territories. You know, 10 years ago, Netflix was a domestic um, player only. Um, and the way it would work would be the production company would sell, inter, you know, domestic rights to, to Netflix and then sell off international rights to any number of distributors overseas. What has happened and what has been a real focus for me over the past few years is, you know, on the Netflix side, they've now expanded, you know, on a worldwide basis. So if they're grabbing things, they generally grab it worldwide in perpetuity and Amazon's going to be right behind them as will, you know, the other players. But what has happened is there's been this great importing of international business. And, and this is frankly how I started working with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and, and um, Jesse Armstrong on Succession and the creator of Sex Education and all the cast members, is I saw this trend emerging about five years ago where UK broadcasters and production companies, and their business works a little bit differently, but basically, Companies like the BBC commission a show in the, in the UK and their budgets are like $100,000 an episode, $200,000 an episode. And Netflix started acquiring the US rights. Amazon started acquiring the US rights. So these were shows, you know, again, the end of the fucking world and, and sex ed and, and Fleabag at the time. They were shows that just existed over there in the UK and the streamers saw them, saw they were like cutting edge, really compelling. Same thing happened in Israel and they came out and acquired them. And I, I saw this and I remember watching and like a friend of mine turned me on to Fleabag and I remember watching an episode on Amazon and it said BBC three. That was the, the broadcaster in the UK. So immediately I knew this was like, like, on a shoestring. And here Amazon is marketing it like crazy, churning subscribers. And in that transaction, I saw there was this massive arbitrage opportunity. And so I, I remember flying to London and having a conversation with Phoebe and her agents in London and explaining, there are millions of dollars here that are just headed overseas. You need to grab it. So, you know, to the extent you're talking about, you know, co-productions and, and projects that come out of different territories that are now being broadcast here, shows like Fauda and, and you know, and they're, they're coming from every territory. That's a lot of what's happening. Um, if you're talking about the export business, that's a lot about individual sales to different territories. 
That's great. Thank you. Oh, this is an interesting one from Jake. Uh, recently, many celebrities seem to be gravitating toward live streaming platforms like Twitch, Thomas Middleditch, Terry Crews, and Logic come to mind, where creatives seem to have much more independent control over their content and a more direct line of interaction and influence on their fans or consumers. Do you sense there's a general trend of that happening um, with creatives moving toward more independent modes of generating content versus traditional models like film, TV, and record labels? And if so, how does that impact your strategy of legal representation? So, and Jake, awesome question as well. So I'd be naive to say that it doesn't reflect a trend that will continue to grow. Um, I think this is where I have my gray hair on and I admit that because of where my practice sits, it's less of my focus, though something my younger colleagues are definitely you know, getting in front of and, and I'm encouraging them to do so. Um, right now, the economics you know, are generally ad revenue splits with the platform. And the reality is for the people that are, like the established film and TV and music actors that are transitioning to those platforms, they're getting paid some premium as part of the deal, but the economics, at least on the side that I would participate in, are not at the level they are, by the way, even at a Quibi, which I have major issues with. Um, the flip side is to the extent, you know, artists are being discovered off of these platforms, and I know TikTok is, is basically a, a feeding ground, certainly on the music side. Um, the question for people like me is, because they've already established these robust businesses on their own, right? Like the YouTube players, um, they don't want our help in the ad sales space. And so it makes sense for me if they can transition into more mainstream acts where I can negotiate their business. Cause like uh, the gamer on a, Ninja, like Ninja's making millions of dollars on his ad sales. He's not going to cut a lawyer or anybody else into that because he's been doing it on his own for years. So if I can help Ninja find a big brand relationship that he's not otherwise getting on his own, uh, then great. If not, it's not a real business for me. I'm going to close this because I see I'm getting a little bit of a glare. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks. So here's, here's a different one from Abby. Um, from a legal standpoint, do you have any concern about a repeat of the Paramount decree? Do you foresee issues in terms of the new streaming giants having control over production, distribution, and exhibition? Yes. <laughs> Abby. Look at Abby. I want to know what Abby's background is. She's an MFA screenwriter. Got it. Um, yeah, so Abby, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and um, just to go back years ago, <laughs> production companies were not, uh, distributors were not allowed to own production companies. And so um, companies like CBS and Paramount couldn't have the same ownership. And then the financial syndication rules were. Uh, abolished and all of a sudden companies could vertically integrate and that's what we see today with a whole host of um, conglomerates like 
AT&T owning HBO and CNN and Warner Brothers and and the streaming platforms to me, Abby, are exactly the extension of, you know, the vertical in integration concern. And it's a conversation I'm having with the, you know, CFOs and COs of all the studios about how they're going to account to us when they sell internally, because like I said, that's all they're angling towards. And so far, the streaming platforms have been very opaque about their numbers. But now what's going to happen is we're going to have deals in place with the, you know, brick and mortar company that provide for defined participation ownership interests. And I just dealt with this on, on trolls, you know, Timberlake did this trolls movie and Universal sent it directly to Peabody. Um, meaning it didn't go to theaters, it was available at home for 30 bucks for a window. And then Universal subsequently made a deal with AMC movie theaters where they could shorten the theatrical window and then put it out, you know, on premium on demand. So to the extent we have an ownership interest in, in that, Universal is going to have to show us the numbers on those deals so that we can audit them and, and collect our participation. But, but yes, you know, we are fighting contracts in contracts language about affiliated dealings and how they have to conduct those negotiations. And I, it's, it's the hot topic in our discussions right now. Are you involved at all, past or present, in dealing with regulators or government figures at all? Or is that sort of outside? To the extent um, you can address that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, great question. Um, you know, we don't do the lobbying. Um, we, we don't deal, I mean, we deal with antitrust issues in that, you know, we know they're all colluding and so we do too, but um, no, we're not really involved in the lobbying or governmental side of this, the regulation side of this. Gotcha. Thanks. Um, so Jeffrey asks, where does your care for a movie or television show that you help negotiate a deal for end? How far does your stake in the projects that your representatives take on go? And how does this compare with a manager or agent? Good question. Yeah, great question, Jeffrey. It, everyone's different about this. So I have a partner of mine who's a very good friend. And I'll ask him, hey, have you seen a sh the, uh, whatever show? He goes, no, I don't have anybody in that show. I don't have time for it. And he only watches shows that his clients are involved in and nothing else. I, I watch, uh, you know, I generally just watch what I like. And sometimes I jump into a project because I have a client who is a part of it. And, you know, that's an added benefit. I mean, I, you know, I try to only take on clients whose work I admire. And so, you know, I mean, I've, I've represented Daniel Tosh for 15 years and I couldn't stop watching Tosh.0 and I, I gave it up a couple of years ago. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, this is an interesting one from Richard. Are the exclusive relationship deals with streamers similar to contracts made with emerging artists in the music industry where they sign with the label and have to produce music under that label for a certain amount of years or produce X number of albums? So basically music industry versus. So another great question, Richard. Um, you know, I live in both spheres. Definitely similarities. The difference is that the film and television 
is comprised of civil human beings, whereas the music industry is comprised of just maniacs. Um, and the label business is very challenging. And you hear all the time, you know, from Prince to Taylor Swift to whomever, like the, the dealings with record labels can be very challenging because as you correctly note, Richard, they sign deals that are exclusive and require a minimum amount of deliverables. So theoretically, a deal with an artist could last 15 years if that person didn't deliver the number of albums that were called for. Now that may not be enforceable. The other shitty thing about um, these label deals now is because records don't sell anymore and there's no money to be made in record sales and people are buying singles or streaming singles and the economics of that are pretty unsatisfying to the artist and the label, the label now has glommed on to all aspects of the artist's career when they have the leverage to do so. And, and the big value proposition is touring and tour merchandising. So those deals are really, really um, onerous. The overall deals between the artist and the streamer also, you know, incredibly um, encumbering in the sense that if you are going to develop a program, if you're a, a creator, right, or a creator and an actor, and, and that's really the bulk of my business, and you have an overall deal with a streamer, and that deal says you can only develop shows for us, that means you can't go out and sell a show to Amazon. Now, Sometimes when you have the leverage on the artist side, um, you can structure the deal so that it's nothing you write can be done somewhere else. But if you're taking a job as an actor, you can go do that anywhere. So like Andy Samberg and his comedy group, The Lonely Island, have a deal at CBS for TV and it's an exclusive deal, but Andy can go act in anything. And even if he acts in it, he can take a producing credit. Elizabeth Banks has the same situation with Warner Brothers. Phoebe has the same situation at Amazon. So a little more latitude, but, but they're comparable in structure. That's great. I'm actually going to um, pivot to just a final couple questions for you. Yeah. Um, and they, they had some great ones. Yeah, thank um, you, guys. One is um, just any final words of advice or thoughts that you haven't been able to share that you'd like to impart before we break? Um, I think my advice, you know, and, and it's, you know, advice I wish I had gotten is it's a marathon, not a sprint, you know, and like I said, this is an interesting time in all of our lives. And if you have passion about doing this, you know, follow it but don't be discouraged if you don't land your dream job on day one. It, it can take any number of paths to get where you want to be. And my advice is be really good at whatever you're doing because that's the easiest way to get somewhere else. And, and this is like old guy advice to young people, but like enjoy the journey too, because you'll meet awesome people on the way to wherever you're going and they'll show up in interesting ways in your life later. And, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had even in the miserable parts of life. That's good final words. But my final question, which I ask of every guest, 
is what are you watching these days to the extent you can watch anything? <laughs> We're watching a ton. So I have, so I have three kids. I have a daughter who's eight and she and I, I think have watched Hairspray 14 times in the past month. It's a fun movie. My middle son is a horror um, film fanatic. So we've been going through horror movies. My oldest son and I have the most similar tastes and he and I, like I said, we're in the middle of Peaky Blinders, which is just awesome. We, you know, we're desperately awaiting the next season of Fauda. Um, I'm starting Tehran, which I've heard great things about. And my, probably the best show in the history of television is Selling Sunset on Netflix. <laughs> Excellent. So, you aren't the first person to say that, actually. I'm not? No. Yeah, because it, it's the best show on television. <laughs> I need to check a lot of these out. This Really, this is my selfish question of what should I be watching. Yeah. Um, well, thank you Telling so sunset. much, PJ. I really, this was great. We covered a lot of territory. Yeah, and I thank really you. Thank you. You're going to invite me back next year. Oh, yes. We want All you right. back, hopefully in person. Definitely. <laughs> great to, you know, be with everyone. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit rtf.utexas.edu mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Leslie Willard, Brett Siegel, and Alex Remington. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kate Cronin. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation.